welcome to Radio Free Deimos, an Ixundrachronis fan podcast broadcasting from a post-Deimos orbit on Object 17 Voltaire Station. This episode is brought to you by Marsco. Ten million brands, one Marsco. How can we own you? This is episode 68, Build Your Own Corp. And with me this week is Ashtar, Wines, Hello. and I'm Corbeau. So we are looking at Unification Day coming up soon. Terra is taking another year around the sun, which is our arbitrary designation of time in 700 AE. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that it was 700 AE. So I'd like to ask my co-hosts, how are you celebrating the new fiscal year? They let me choose what color of completed stickers they use this year. That's nice. That's nice. I'm going with pink. We're going to have a big champagne and amortization party. It's going to be a blast. So my corporate financial attorney has sent me all of my normal withholding and perks, but all of them are in e wrapping paper. So I have to digitally unwrap each one before I can figure out what I'm actually supposed to be doing or not doing for the next month or so. It sounds like an ASMR dream. (laughs) Unwrap it slowly. Click. Sorry. (laughs) Click. (laughs) Click. We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So this topic was sort of requested by the Discord chat. How can PCs go about building their own corporations? Kind of a spinoff of the Big 7 we've been talking about over the last couple of months. We've touched on this a little bit because sometime in 2017, we had an episode on how to become a megacorp, which is perhaps a little ambitious for most campaigns, as there's only seven megacorps, and you probably won't be one of them. It's ambitious for some campaigns. You also have some other D&D campaigns where you're aspiring to become the god of the multiverses, and people play that out. So different tables, different scales. I kind of think becoming a god might be easier than becoming a megacorp. Less paperwork. Yeah, true. But that's, that's really up to you and your campaign. What we've learned from Lumen is that being a megacorp involves having a lot of deep history and a lot of deep subsidiaries and... A lot of people under your belt as well. So it may not be attainable on a campaign timetable. It's also the bucket of crabs problem. Or any rising corporation is going to be dealing with massive pushback from other corporations. Oh. So it becomes a certain amount of PC specialty to really start developing into a corp that develops overnight or developing into a corp that becomes much more widely known. There's a little bit of hand-waving that you would expect for that. Or you get into really deep corporate knife fights if the table likes that. Looking at characters like Daenerys from Game of Thrones and Conan the Barbarian late in his cycle, uh, you don't always want to be in charge of the Empire. That's less fun. So keep it small, maybe. That might be a better model for adventurers. And don't join the establishment. You can also look at the rise of some of the megacorps that we've been talking about recently most of them either split off with a patronage agreement from Marsco, or they just completely came out of left field and appeared overnight, like Lumen. There aren't too many that just worked their way up the megacorp ladder like natural megacorps do or don't do. Well, and we don't really know. There's a lot of corporations that are the size of a megacorp out there. They just don't have any book page real estate yet. Anyway, neither here nor there. But how does this affect your campaign? I guess we'll talk about that today. But it is one of the major flavor text of, or one of the major flavors of this system. It is something that should affect your campaign. 
that corporate advancement in general? Well, corporations in general. Yeah. And time again, we said this. The game seems to dwell on the idea that there's a big seven and no one else. And this cosmology is just filled to the brim with corporations, small, big, large corporations, all the way up and corporations all the way down. Uh, every little business transaction is with a corporation of some sort. And it's not necessarily with Marsco. It's with a fourth or fifth or seventh level subsidiary of Marsco, if that. So, and I think that's kind of what we're going to be looking at for the most part, playing the little guys. So kind of question I wanted to ask about your campaign and your PCs becoming their own little corporation is, are they already a corporation? I think the reason to ask that is that most things in Exundraconis seem to be corporations. I am actually 47 corporations, and that's only the ones that I am sole owner of. <laughs> See, I, I'm imagining that, you know, those those deals where you, you get four digital downloads for a dollar, for a penny or whatever when you're growing up, that you... You sign up for one of those and you find out now you're a corporation. Because no, who read the fine print, right? Probably. You've, you've joined MP3 of the Month Club Corporation. You, you're now a subsidiary of Marsco. <laughs> Deep down, aren't we all subsidiaries of Marsco? Yeah. In the color text in Exundraconis Core Extended, uh, with the little aardvark girl, who's not an aardvark, but she looks like an aardvark. I thought she was a lynx. Well, I think her illustrator really likes aardvarks. Okay, cool. Um, we, we kind of indirectly meet her parents, and her parents are incorporated as a couple. Like, that's, that's marriage is a corporate contract. Okay. Does that make them a corporation, capital C? Uh, I don't know, really. The rules are not clear on this. But it may be that most family structures are a form of corporation. That sure. would certainly help with divorce contract negotiation. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If corporations are everywhere, why not use that language to describe a lot of things? I mean, especially since you're not carrying the traditions of old earth on as strongly as humans did for so long. Yeah. Why not do it in a rational rules-based corporation mode? Well, and functionally today, a corporation is mostly just a structure for carrying money in a bucket and making sure that the money is controlled and reported on properly. Or not. Unless you're a sovereign citizen, in which the case the representative of the corporation is the personhood of which the current tax financial institution cannot lay a finger upon. <laughs> That's a great expression, Carbo. <laughs> I wasn't expecting him to say that. So it may be safe to assume that if your PCs have been operating together for a fairly long time and they've been doing business together, they've been having little missions and getting commissions back from the powers that be, they may have been doing so under a business ID number license. I mean, you can't even sell art here without having a business ID of some sort. So That's true. your party may already have been incorporated and nobody told them just when they pressed that particular button on the uh, contract itself. Yeah. You can also make it official and just make it the wizard in the tavern of the first time that you get together and start playing. It's, well, instead of a wizard at a tavern, here's your corporation. Now you're a party, so introduce yourself and let's go. Go actually get to work. All tavern owners are notary publics. <laughs> yes, yes, you beat me to it. <laughs> I see you look like you're forming a party. Let me get my corporation stamp. <laughs> stamp, <laughs> stamp. <laughs> that being said, having the party as a corporation from the beginning does pull the party together. And for many tables, that is something that the GM will often struggle with. That's something that the party members will often struggle with. 
by incorporating early and basically presenting it as part of the game, the default then becomes to have the power struggles within the party slash corporation, but also somewhat work to the same goal. It's kind of a recognition that there is something going on and you shouldn't just split up into six different directions and do your own thing for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. Well, I think when we formed our campaign party as a corporation, as a little mini corp, we also kind of automatically just fell into the role of what are our job titles. And it was kind of an organic way of divvying up some of the core duties. Well, I want to be the numbers guy. I want to be HR. I want to be the face. But it gave more organic titles. Mm-hmm. That was, in a sense, planned. Um, <laughs> when I threw the party at you, I believe I did ask who was going to be the captain and left it at that. But simply by designating one person with an official role, everybody else starts picking their own and it falls out. And then not only do you have a party, you have a party with titles and you have a party with roles and people start deferring to different people for different decisions while still operating as a group and backstabbing each other. It's good stuff. I'm imagining that like when you get the paperwork as you're forming your your party uh, corporation, just, you know, scratch out where it says dwarf and write in electronics repair specialist if you have to. It's it's the same paperwork, just, you know. (laughs) Bicycle repairman. So a lot of making the jump from just kind of a party of adventurers that works together and receives contracts at their joint bank account to becoming what I think people would think of as a corporation that's really more about picking your brand and picking your name and putting up a Solnet website and establishing a social media presence. The decision is to turn outwards and invite people to look into your corporate world, to invite investors, to invite you know shareholders and that sort of thing. That's what being a corporation kind of really means in HSD is your public offering in a sense. And doing that is inviting risk. You, we're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. We're not playing a game where you assume win conditions. We're certainly not playing Rifts. <laughs> in story type games, the idea is to seek out problems and sometimes solve them. Make them worse. <laughs> yeah, make them worse. Exactly. So to be a corporation is to intrinsically be taking on a lot of risk. And I think that's actually written into the books in a few places that it's pretty safe being at the bottom because you get food on tap, literally. And it's pretty safe being at the top, except for the assassins. But the entire middle realm is like where all of the risk and really all of the corporate slavery and dystopia comes from, is the uh, corporations feeding on smaller corporations that happens at the kind of the middle realm between those two levels. (laughs) If you're at the top, you hire the better assassins. As as an aside, Carbo, we were talking about 70s sci-fi authors. One of Jack Chalker, in his Well World series, it's this world with a bunch of artificial races dotted all over it. And one race, they're they're kind of cybernetic murder T-Rexes. Very, very rifts, very scary. And... Do they have tiny arms? Uh, I don't know, but they have like built-in guns and they're, they're super scary. But the, the one the one thing that unifies them is that they have an absolute ruler and the entire species can can all get along despite being murder reptile robots because they all want to kill him, whoever it happens to be. Aww. That is what unifies them. That resembles sweet. Yeah. 
So step two, besides determining your brand and your logo and your look and your business model and such, is just to accept that risk is a part of your story. I think that's really important. By saying, yes, we are a corp, yes, we are doing business in the system, you are taking your little guppy self and throwing yourself into the shark tank. And that may be the end of your characters and your story, but you need to be able to invite that sort of thing into your life. Well, digging yourself out of a hole is a story, too. It is. Some holes you can't dig out of. Sometimes they're six feet deep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. There's a corporate motto in there somewhere. Progenitus probably has it. Ooh, TTI. TTI has it. <laughs> At a certain point, you're worth more as organs. So about a year ago, sort of related to this, I wrote up a large corporation, not quite a megacorp, but trying to get there, called Sinisher. Sinisher? Sinisher. Uh, a word that means kind of being at the center of things and the center of attention and such. Interesting. It's a good word. Their role and how they'd kind of risen to near megacorp status was to help other corporations make their names. I mean, they were basically a large group of branding consultants and service providers, but also they had a lot of like dark magic involved in how the ledger system worked and had like deep knowledge of that that was maybe even a little higher than ASRs at this point. In the last kind of phase of their game story, they were bought out by Lumen, which has made people variously happy and nervous. Let me introduce you to our new consultants, the Bobs. <laughs> yes. Hi, Bobs. I want to talk about Bob later on, actually. Anyway, the only reason I bring this up is because their role was to kind of help corporations find their footing and their branding and things like that. And having a group like that, you know, they work on, you know, a percentage, might be really useful for your characters having some initial patronage and then trying to escape from that group later on. But I'll link to them on the show notes, which I, if I ever indeed post show notes again, it's been a while. So taking the build your own corp road, part of that is engaging in a long-term plot of campaign advancement and campaign growth. Having your own business in this particular setting makes sense as being an easy way of doing that or a logical way of doing that. We talked with Emmy a week or so ago about some new elements in the upcoming Game Master resource book on Kickstarter sometime in late January, probably. One thing she mentioned was the new ARC Advancement rule set, which will let PCs expand their power base in ways that aren't directly character sheetable. More things like how to deal with the world, more purchasing power, more corporate influence, kind of like the old leverage system in uh, 1.0, maybe in some ways. Is it rep reputation? Was that what it's called? Uh, I don't know. Well, the, the system she was talking about was was uh, arc advancement. Right, I so, remember the old one. Leverage, I think, was the okay. name of it. Uh, there were a few other words associated with it, though. You know, I'm probably deeply wrong on this. So one way of managing corporate advancement is just as a part of the story naturally. And this tool set may give you some ways to show off how the character's reach is expanding in ways that like aren't directly community roles, that sort of thing. So I suspect that's going to be really helpful for building out building out the story of your character's corporation growth. And of course, you can just ignore it as a mechanic as well and just assume that the character's corporation has, you know, a solid reflection of where they should be in your game world and maybe they are about the business acumen of the three stooges or maybe they're extremely savvy and the corp can reflect that or maybe it doesn't reflect it at all and it's based entirely on the whims of darker corporate masters. Which actually kind of fits the setting because maybe no matter what you're doing, it's not enough when there's Marsco out there eating up all the fish. Who knows? But it is a game construct that the players can invest in and feel invested in and work together with. 
which is just another place that the GM can take away from the players to uh, accent some of the bigger plot points. Yeah, then you get to that point of um, kind of hero system mechanics where you might want to be careful about taking resources away that the PCs have paid for, which means just using it as a plot device might actually be kind of safer for the game master. It might need might lead to less grumbling. I don't know. That's that's between you and your table. But it, it can, it's also a realm of, of kind of things you can offer, like gimmies or goals that aren't so much personal goals, but gosh, collectively, we sure would like this for our corporation. And so it could be positive motivation that way, too. Yeah. I like the way something like this is handled in Werewolf the Apocalypse and really almost all of the White Wolf games. They usually have some stat that you can pull your resources together for. Uh, in Mage, it's your like library shanty workshop. Hmm. In um, Changeling, it's your fabulous freehold. And in Werewolf, it's your pack totem. Right. And that's a single entity that you can kind of dump shared points in and advance it together. And um, come to a collective agreement on what totem represents us best or what right. what, and it's what, kind our, of, what our library would look like, I suppose, for Mage. Yeah, yeah. And you may be able to have like 50 points in it, and it's not just one, two, three, four, five points. It's also, you know, spend three points and get packed telepathy. Spend five points and your totem is feared by minions of the worm or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the totem acquires different abilities as you invest more points in it in a fairly straightforward way. One way I thought this might translate well is kind of the fate approach, where you give every situation its own character sheet. Uh-huh. Um, I do like the fate game. An example they have of this sort of structure is the characters are fighting a forest fire. How do you do that? Well, you could do an elaborate skill challenge, or you could just stat out the forest fire as if it was an NPC with a certain number of traits and a certain number of skills and a certain number of hit points and roll against it like it was a monster. Right. And obviously attacking it with things that are appropriate for attacking fire you can't stab it right right or, right or, or make it doubt its relationship with his parents well you never know bards are really it depends on your setting <laughs> so that's an approach that might actually work fairly well for building a corp instead of worrying too much about how it works stat it out as an npc a stylized npc perhaps which doesn't really have much of a body skill necessarily but kind of give it a collection of skills that reflect its specialties as a corporation and a certain level of community influence and just roll against it. And that might be a way to compare it to other corporations. That is a crazy idea. So Ashtar, in the campaign you're running, the, the, the ship we have has that, that AI. Is Imagine if we put that in charge of our corporation, kind of made that the face of our corporation. And that, that way the corporation could actually be a person and actually have a body. It's a small ship that has a lot of social media accounts. That could be fun. There are dangers with that approach when you start putting AIs in public-facing roles. Yeah, but compare it to any of the any of the biological members of the party. (laughs) Could it do? Could it do any worse? (laughs) It would be more competent, and that might be a problem. Oh, right. Suddenly, your brand expands to encompass the entire solar system. What do you do now? Also, creates unrealistic expectations that we cannot possibly live up to. <laughs> uh, one fun wrinkle, if you're building out your your mini corp as a character sheet, is that you can. I mean, I assume the PCs are going to be investing some percentage of their XP into this in some way that mathematically makes sense. If you're the kind of game master that doesn't like rapid character advancement, this lets you sponge up some of those points that the characters might be having sloshing around. So keep that balance sheet off to the side 
and the character with the most points in it can maybe engage in something like a hostile takeover or a better relationship with the corporation. And that might surprise people a little later on when they find out, oh, wait, we're not as in charge of it as we thought we were. That's a very real side of, I know, the nonprofit world. And maybe it'd be fun for your campaign. Or maybe it would create division and uh, shirt rending. I don't know. Another big question for your journey of corporate exploration and discovery is, are you going to try and be independent, which is cute, or are you just going to bite the bullet and immediately make yourself a subsidiary of some other corporation, officially or unofficially? Uh, I think that's a really important first question, because if you're going to be a subsidiary, then you have your corporate master and the level of oversight over that, and that's going to be, there's some pros and cons there. You'll have deeper pockets, deeper resources, better name recognition, and some degree of safety from outside predators. But you're going to be, like, exposing yourself to a lot of internal predators and oversight. Right. And and control. Yeah. Random management changes. And corporate blame shifting, which is a very big thing the megacorps like to do. If you're an indie corporation, you're really kind of exposed to the elements, but you'll have a little less corporate oversight. And one thing that... Emmy has mentioned a few times is that if you're on a ship and you're an independent corporation, you are in sovereign space that is not controlled by anyone other than yourself. And at times that's useful. There are places where you can almost entirely escape Big Brother. And that would be on your ship when you are not directly owned by Marsco or something like that. So it's a mutiny then. Arr. Like a solar system mutiny. <laughs> I mean, you're still paying money to Marsco. It's not like they care. But they may not have a full presence that investigates your lives there at that point in time. No, that would be the PCs within the spaceship that are out of IRPF control at that point. Well, it's not your fault if your your spaceship doesn't have a lot of internal walls and things like that. Privacy is kind of an illusion. (laughs) So so who runs the solar system's fleet of repo men? That's got to be a thing. Marsco. Marsco? Not IRPF? It's the Asset Recycling Division. Oh. Yeah. Soiling Green is also... (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Your recycled parts may include one of the following. People. (laughs) Sadly, we're not making this up. They called him mad when he first launched a 3D printer into space. They didn't call him that for long. There's kind of a happy medium, though, which is being a subsidiary of ASR or Progenitus... Those two megacorps tend to give a lot of patronage to their uh, the corps underneath them. They tend to kind of promote and front them at their business opportunities and corp towns and things like that. Uh, if you're a progenitus subsidiary and you're in a progenitus town, you might get some very nice placement towards the center of town. They provide a lot of public services and they lean on their subsidiary corporations to provide some of those good job prospects. And ASR tends to be very keen on artists, uh, content creators, that sort of thing that it's hard to get AIs to do. And they also tend to dump a lot of money into their subsidiary uh, research teams and such. Now, Progenitus has an awful lot of active oversight and meddling in your business. And ASR tends to have a lot of passive oversight and meddling in your business. But those two megacorps may be really good options for a patron that's Fairly supportive and friendly. Fairly. Sure. For some reason, I'm remembering that, that this could kind of be applied to progenitus too. The, the old saying about NASA is you can have any color paint you want as long as it's white. Yeah. But you do have gold trim. So that's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty. 
This is going to be white, ivory, or Blanche. <laughs> what if there's a website you can go to that says, what corporations am I a part of? <laughs> it's full of lies. <laughs> Another good note on corporations from a game standpoint. When you have player corporations and you start spinning that into more of a corporate versus corporate type battle, as opposed to more interpersonal battles, that lets the game master keep a more consistent antagonist. When you have big bads of a more personal or vector nature, especially within HSD, they do tend to die fairly quickly. There's not a whole lot of get out of the fight and while you laugh and swirl your cloak as previous shows. Uh, PCs can be pretty lethal and there's only so much magic hand-waving to keep bringing the big bad back. But when they just keep promoting a new CEO, you still have that same continuity. Well, business rivals, you don't necessarily bump off with guns quite so often. I mean, it depends on your field of business. So that's a good way to have recurring antagonists that have names and personalities that you can't really get rid of ever because it's you the guy's accountant. You and I have very different concepts of the corporations in this game. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> Remember, Dread Pirate Roberts is a position, not a person. <laughs> but a low-level middle management person that's protected by layers and layers and layers of buildings might be a really good long-term antagonist, the kind that you can't really get in D&D, for instance. Or definitely White Wolf. Don't build up a relationship with your Black Spiral dancers, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. So let's talk mini-corporation structures out three years ago in 2016, I wrote an article for our website called Exotic Options. So I've had that lying around for about three going on four years, and I've almost certainly used it extensively in other conversations. So if I'm repeating myself over the course of the last 60 episodes, mea culpa, but let's go on. Kerbo, it's okay. We're married. I'll never call you on repeating yourself. <laughs> A couple of different business structure ideas uh, for how to model your corporation. Some of these are real-life corporation models. Oh, that was redundant. Which are a good inspiration for structures and things like that. We can begin with the subsidiary model, which is your character's corporation is three or four or five levels removed from one of the mega corporations, Or maybe a very large indie of some sort that is not a mega corporation, but is kind of trying to get into the space that big dogs occupy. I think this is a fairly safe default assumption for a lot of corporations run by PCs because you're probably going to have a patron corporation already. I mean, maybe you take a lot of missions from Progenitus or your character is doing a lot of research and development for TTI. It's likely that you have a standard business partner you work with and you might have de facto become a subsidiary of that group just by regular association and clicking too many POSs. It might be that your corporation is kind of associated with but not really on the books a lot of corporations a lot of megacorps seem to use mini corps in this manner there's that revitalon corporation in the first hsd novel that's a undercover sort of spinoff of progenitus i think that they use for some really dark r&d these are ways for the megacorps to kind of play a shell game of blame and pass really dubious experiments off to someone that is obviously not one of their organization mm -hmm. Blame deferring is really a huge corporate activity. It's really one of the only reasons the other corps exist as far as Marsco is concerned. I'm repeating myself a bit, but some of the perks of being a subsidiary, uh, you have some, some levels of protection. You have a lot more resources than your standard startup. Uh, you have the, the reputation 
and clout of your corporation to draw on indirectly at least, they might not want to mess with a child of ASR or something like that. Almost as importantly, there's a vast corporate history and ecosystem tied to any large corporation in this game. It's hard to quantify that, but corporations become like nations in HSD, and it's not just your the person that signs your paycheck, but it's a culture that goes back years, decades, sometimes centuries. And uh, having some part of that in your corporate DNA is frequently very useful. Subsidiaries can also focus on a single kind of clear idea, a single product, a single concept, a single business structure, which the megacorps can't do, but a small PC-driven corporation kind of can. But they can still say kind of they can still be kind of light and lean while working in that bigger corporation ecosystem. Yeah, I appreciate Ashtar that in your campaign the. The reps we've worked with, when our corporation has been working for other cor- corporations, it's always been through a person who has a personality, seems like a real person. Doesn't mean we don't immediately flush them and go work for another corporation five minutes later because we like making work for you, but... <laughs> it's just business, baby. They're a faceless bureaucrat. They're used to it. But they're, they're people, and I, I like them. <laughs> <laughs> Some big risks of the subsidiary model. Uh, blame avalanches, always a big one. Blame rolls downhill, and you are at the bottom of that hill. Welcome to life under Marsco. Internal competition, also a problem, particularly if you're researching something that another corporation is researching or would like to be researching. Uh, sell-offs, murder, murders? <laughs> sell-offs, mergers, and trades are also a thing. You never know, uh, particularly if you're working for a corporation that is not a mega, you never know who's going to hold your contract next month, necessarily. There's probably a lot of stability, but there's always an open question of when are you going to get sold and chopped up into little bits. As a related side, uh Guy Ritchie, who I adore, the director who makes lots of Brit crime shows. You're, you're, you're talking about, you know, how blame rolls downhill. And I was thinking of his, his movie Layer Cake, which kind of expounds upon that. And it's, it, I think it's a beautiful illustration of how people can have a very precise plan of we're just doing this. And all it takes is just a few bad decisions here and there. And all of a sudden you're under a wall of shit. Yeah, I think. GM should watch that and then say, ooh, I don't want to do that to my characters, but I've got some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, the layers of bureaucracy really gives you some opportunities for snowballs rolling downhill. And mm-hmm. That's useful. Uh, other GM opportunities, annoying middle management, uh, unreasonable goals and quotas, surge periods, uh, internal audits. Surge periods? Ma- surge that? periods. Oh, like um, in game design where everybody's pushing for the same goal towards the end of the cycle. Or... It's um, November, and you're getting everything ready for Christmas distribution. Okay, okay, yeah. S- yep. Surge periods. New management, yeah, either I, a total... W- I, I, mm-hmm. guess, I guess there's employees that you'd never hire, but when it's November and you have more packages you need to deliver, it's like, sure, yeah, hire them. Yeah, well, and and um, like in, in there might be a need to suddenly push a big key product, like a new fashion line or something like that. Uh, you never know. There's seasonality, and there's a lot of like fake enforced seasonality in HSD. This perceived scarcity is increased by having waves of product and such. That's a little like para-relevant there. I don't know. Arbitrary decisions from on high, very popular. Friendly fire from internal rivals. And headhunters from outside agencies. Skipping on to another kind of default business model uh, would be the LLC, the Limited Liability Corporation. Chances are, if you have a 
business in the real world. It's likely an LLC. This is a small mom and pop corporation, maybe, or a fairly large corporation that just doesn't have a lot of shareholders. Maybe it's run by a partnership or something like that. But the business structure kind of provides a shell for the person, for the owner to separate their assets and the corporation's assets. A, a couple of furry cons are actually LLCs. I think probably a few businesses that are run by one person are LLCs as well. Yeah. Um, it's basically wrapping a tax ID number around a home business. But it could be any corporation that doesn't really have shareholders or a very small number of partners. They have little or no oversight. That's a plus. Little or no protection. That's a minus. And not a lot of legacy. They're not going to leave deep roots necessarily if they're tied into a single person, although you could maybe pass it on to somebody later on or sell it. But kind of this lasting impact may not be there so much in this corporate universe. And again, LLCs have that small but sovereign thing happening on their ship or when they're in unclaimed territory. They really are their own world. And that's kind of an asset if you're trying to escape corp oversight. But it means that IRPF can do an awful lot of things to you when they find you because you are not under anybody's protection when you're on your own ship, except your own. I think this is probably the other good default assumption because if the PCs are playing corporations against each other or they're just taking money for their business, they're probably an LLC. Mm -hmm. This next one is one of my favorites that I found when I was going through a dig of corporate lexicon stuff. Uh, the hedge dog. I love this. The two most valuable words in the corporate world are plausible deniability and the hedge dog corporation structure kind of represents that. They are short-lived, frequently single-purpose corporations. Uh, they often have extremely strong resources for a corporation of their size and age. Other popular names, uh, toxic asset dump or flash corporation. They burn bright and then explode and tend to operate for just a very brief window of time, sometimes two or three years, sometimes five minutes before and after the, the close of the fiscal year. It depends on their needs, but they're a way to make bad assets disappear, work through some tax problems and things like that. Generally speaking, there are two types of hedge dog corporations, uh, insiders that are in on the joke and golden child corporations that are in for a very nasty surprise down the road. Some common but not universal traits for hedge dog corps. Frequently, they're built around a strong CEO who may or may not exist. Their lifespan is usually in single digits, sometimes 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes a few years. I think like a year is about what you can expect or hope for, time enough to build up a reputation and then explode. They always have fuses. Maybe they're aware of them. Maybe they're not. I don't know. Frequently, they have a weird immunity to taxes and tariffs because they are a tax sink and their corporate masters are treating them with knowledge that they're going to be useful money dumps down the road. They can sometimes have very deep pockets that somehow magically refill themselves and corporate rails that seem to be pre-greased so they can get to their goals. And no farther. Yeah, and exactly. A lot of being kind of the more patsy model of the hedge dog is things are really working well for you. It seems like you're going to be able to be that shining star that Everybody is saying you're going to be, while simultaneously laughing behind their fans. Amazing entertainment budgets, also frequent. Haze of optimism. Strange corporate missions that can't survive in the real world or seem dreadfully out of character for your corporate masters. Angel backers that never seem to ask questions and never ask for audits. This is a sign that something is not going right. A handful of employees that seem to escape from a heist film or have multiple levels of false identities. And the big one, the big common thing that pretty much all hedge dogs have is a sudden explosive bubble burst with a debt load on the level of medieval serfdom. 
I, I'm remembering something at, at a previous job when the company I worked for with was shutting down. We, we all knew it, and there was some grumbling. And then we heard from the manager, um, the CEO wants me to tell you if there's any more complaining, he can just fire you all and hire temps to empty the building. <laughs> That's dark. It's like, hey, at least we know where we stand. <laughs> Cheaper than temps. So the Hedgehog Corp is a willing or unwilling method of disposing of toxic assets and things like that. Uh, it's kind of like a hot zone, but only affects the PCs. And there are no winners. Only the PCs. Popular activities for a Hedgehog game are passing the potato. Very popular. Playing a round of Find the Boss. A meteoric rise to celebrity status. The game of They're Not Laughing at Me, I think. And uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, corporate style, where your characters are kind of outsiders navigating this world of board member assistant type people and uh, not really knowing that they're not part of the big joke or they are the big joke. Anyway, hedge dogs. I like that word a lot. Yeah. It's got dogs in it. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say. One of the things that made me want to go down this topic is thinking about family owned corporations. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of fun there. Uh, I think it can kind of extend the family corporation idea to cover corporations that are strongly regional, like maybe a college or management of a corp town or a series of corp towns. Or uh, single species corporations may kind of fall into this bucket as well because they're not really popular these days, it seems. Uh, They might be kind of small. Or literally a corporation owned and staffed mostly by a family. All these situations are places where you probably can know the majority of people in your corporation. And that leads to increased levels of drama that can be a lot of fun. Right, right. Yeah, it's so much more complex when the people involved have not only the, the business relationships with each other, but also the family relationships with each other. And so it can get really complex. It's like, yeah. yes, yes, we know he's incompetent, but he's our uncle and he's got to do something. <laughs> Uh, You tend to get more monocultures in these structures where people are maybe making decisions based on the exact same pool of information and backgrounds, which may not necessarily be good decisions. A lot of very high personal accountability, ideally, and a lot of trust that may be forced, but still has to be there. Yeah. An excellent model for this for me are the the restaurant makeover shows, because there's a lot of smaller restaurants, which are family businesses. And frequently, a lot of the problem is that things can't happen because of the relationships between the, the people involved, because they can't fire anyone, their family. And that's, yeah. that's a real problem. Yeah. Dad is a terrible waiter, but you can't say that. And then there's the weight of tradition that's on top of that as well. That doesn't help one single bit because you've it's grandfather's corporation and we can't take his portrait off the wall, mm-hmm. even though he looks like a human butt. Another kind of variation on this that I was thinking about is the brilliant and terrible idea of, and this is like, I think, a really good foundation for certain parties. Uh, everybody's married to each other because you can have very complex marriage structures in HSD. They're all contract related. So maybe it makes sense. You know, hey, we had this complicated polycule. We're all in this extended relationship that's branched out to about 10 to 12 people at this point. Probably shouldn't get any bigger. No one's directly sleeping with each other necessarily, but maybe they are. Yeah. The, but the, the level of... The, maybe the d- definitions of marriage in the HSD universe are more based on the practicalities of law and less on tradition or procreation or religious texts. Yeah. And given how easily property flows in a, in a marriage in our world, I mean, it's the easiest way to get money from one person to another without it 
tricking any corporate censors. It's a useful structure, but the potential level of drama is extraordinarily high there. And metaphorically, if one person catches the flu, the entire group has the flu really quickly. So uh, blame is shared. Explosions are shared. Trust has to be like nearly 100%. There's no privacy at all. A certain level of mutually assured destruction kind of governs everything. I wouldn't say trust has to be 100% in a family thing. I'd say that managing levels of trust and knowing, no, no, he's a good guy. No, don't trust him with the money. No, no, (laughs) he's part of the business. Yes, do not give him the cash box. It's a situation where you might not be able to separate yourself because if it's based on like marriage-style property arrangements, leaving it may split your personal assets up eight different ways, which could be pretty devastating for most people, assuming you leave with anything. That's a good point because that, that, that's something that's sometimes kind of hard to reconcile is if you're not good at building a party that has a reason to all work together, which we have a terrible, terrible reputation doing that. We have these diverse, the characters are only a party because they have to be in the same room. But uh, yeah, I, th- th- this is kind of a plausible way to like, we, you know, again, even being married or being in a, an extended family doesn't mean they have to, have to all like each other or have the same goals, but they have to accept, well, we have these ties, we have to work with them. Well, and with an extended kind of polycule arrangement, you can have a couple here and a couple there and a couple there and a couple in the middle and one person over here. And there's bridges between the connections in the giant molecule structure. They're not all directly connected to each other, but the overall support structure has to be fairly strong. Mm -hmm. I have this idea that this structure only exists really in overly optimistic Canaday corporations and maybe hyena day that may be coming from world tree where the canines were super duper social and like to pile into large piles with each other mm-hmm. to sleep but it seems like those two species are the ones that are most likely to make this kind of overly optimistic idea that this could work at all yeah going by stereotype although i have i have to point out that the hyenas do not build things based on relationships hyenas don't do rel- do relationships well, and that depends on how literal you're being in your interpretation of them. Very, very literal. They are the like other solidly social species in HSD. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Highly so. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about them is that they're a highly social species that do not have either long or short-term relationships, reproductive relationships, which is kind of fascinating. But it's off topic. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, we, we, could, we could build this around a uh, small micro-colony of African wild dogs. Sure, sure. There's a lot of potential nervous collapse there. They'd be there. so cute. They'd be twittering to each other all day long. Yeah, so to speak. You know, with their little, or, with their or, toggles. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like the felines, as a rule, would consider it as a fun option, but they're just too like social savvy for this idea and possibly too jaded. Lions. <laughs> hmm? Lions. They're unpleasant. Lions do have a, again, how, how strongly a vector cleaves to its its biological history is 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 up in the air, but to to what extent they make that connection? Lions do have a very strong reproductive based social structure. Yeah, the, the pride structure it, it is there. That's a valid point, and it incorporates uh, it incorporates hostile takeovers. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> you know the kind where all the killed kids get murdered. <laughs> uh, kind of stepping into the world of things that might only exist in HSD. So one part of being a megacorp is that you have culture, deep culture, because megacorps kind of fill the function of tribes and nations, and they have 
700 years of history that, it, you know, Marsco has more history than the United States times two at this point, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of baggage there, a lot of built up ancient rivalries, institutions, literal buildings, paperwork, stocks, <laughs> stock transfers. We really don't have a sense for what happens to stock and how it transfers between people. We know there's a very active stock market in HSD, but the fine details of it are not spelled out. I think that I may be the only person that's worried about that. But one question I've had about that is what happens when a shareholder dies? What happens to their corporation? Uh, what happens to their stock shares? Do they evaporate? That kind of makes sense. Do they go to the next of kin? Are they taxed somehow? I, we, we don't really know. So a corporation that's maybe much more ancient than the PCs, but is small enough and malleable enough for them to have a lot of authority in, is I'm calling it a cryocorp. And this is to a megacorp what urban studies is to archaeology. <laughs> kind of, this is the, the, a cryocorp is the remnants of a large corporation that is no longer publicly traded. It's died, basically, but it's not gone entirely because in the real world, a corporation can just evaporate. You sell its assets and it's gone. Mm-hmm. But you can't really do that with a nation state because there's people there, there's lives there, there's architecture and remnants and secret societies that have maintained traditions for hundreds of years. And these are things that just don't go away. So kind of like a dead star, all these things that accreted around it still have gravity and still kind of shape space in a small way. Okay. This could really only happen with a large corporation that has corp towns, that has planetary holdings, that has large resources before it dies, things that are worth preserving after its death. So cryocorps, uh, also called zombie corps, they're dead, sometimes ancient dead. They're no longer traded. They frequently have the dream of coming back somehow, which is maybe theoretically possible. It's kind of where cryonics comes from as an idea, is the idea that you can cut off a dead person's head after it's been preserved and frozen and bring them back later on when conditions are better. Uh, It never happens. (laughs) It's really hard to do a Phoenix Act after you've been devalued and reduced to just shares on paper with no actual value. But hey, maybe it's possible. So the cryocorp, I kind of imagine it as being a collection of very old board members, maybe even with artificially extended lifespans, tightly controlling what happens with their stocks, tightly controlling who has buy into this corporation because of its potential value down the road and its historical value. And maybe it doesn't have a lot of resources to trade money-wise, but it has kind of ancient, ancient secrets. Maybe these are medical corporations from when Progenitus took them over in 300 AE or something like that. They might know an awful lot of stuff that's not in, that's been destroyed by more modern corporations. Who knows? Kind of deep pockets of corporate loyalty that you might not get in a modern corporation because loyalty becomes like the only real, the only real currency in a structure like this. Mm-hmm. Some, some of this kind of desperation for a resurrection story might lead to some really bad bargains with really dangerous parties, but hey, what the heck? Corporate meetings tend to have a kind of Masonic ritual quality because these are people that are really invested in the secrecy and the lore more than the product and the future because there really isn't a product or the future. Kind of imagining like a children of revolution story or something like that. Really, really old people and kind of an arcane celebration of the past overall. Uh, the question of where does a corporation go when they die in HSD is one that I'm, I like really think is interesting. And I don't think that something that is functionally a nation can just evaporate when its stock has no value Mm -hmm. because I mean, dead languages have been revived by cultures centuries later because of that relevancy to the culture. 
And maybe the same could be happening with a business structure of some sort. I like that idea a lot. So who's the guy that wrote Master of the Five Magics? You remember that one? That fantasy book? Uh, Lyndon Hardy, Lyndon Google Hardy. says. Thank you. I, I'm remembering a story. This is the, the overall plot was that the rules of magic were changing and breaking things. And he was in it. The main character is in a city where everyone it's very economically based and everyone trades in these perfect magical coins that they never degrade. They're perfect forever. And then magic changes and then they're just rusting metal. And and so our clever protagonist talks people into saying, hey, what if we all gather up all of our formerly magical coins, dump them in a deep hole, just write down how many we had, and then continue doing business with, you know, on paper, assuming that these magical coins are still magical somewhere, which is just a beautiful telling of, of, of how uh, abstract economies <laughs> come to be. But, but I'm imagining what, if something like that could happen. It's like, the, well, the corporation that, that owns the city, they're not here, but let's just keep doing things as if they were here. It's like, well, Bob, you know, you were the official subsidiary for building, so we're going to keep going through you under the assumption that those contracts still exist, even though they don't. There's that real-world example of that little island nation that has the giant stone coins. Yeah, yeah. And one of them sunk to the bottom of the ocean, but it was still traded as currency. Sure. It's just as useful, it's just as literal at the bottom of the ocean as it is sitting out on a beach. Uh, some artifacts of like a cryocorp world, ancient lore that accountants were not meant to know, and secrets that are tracked very closely from economies in the ancient past. Corp towns. Corp towns, they can only be dissolved by a quorum. Hmm. And that quorum will never happen because, because the members don't let themselves be in the same room at the same time. Until that deed of trust is resolved by a meeting of 10 shareholders at the same time, that corp town can never be broken down. And it has a castle in it. Huh. It's got to have a castle because that's just the nature of things. I think corporate archaeology is a career that I need to have a PC that pursues actively at some point in time. Sure. Uh, I, I'm also, since I have to make a CJ Cherry reference every episode. Yes. W- w- one of her stories is set on a a family trading ship where everyone except one young person has died. And so he's now running the ship completely on his own. And when he stops, he... He deposits their profits to a a trading consortium, which they were never part of, and then draws upon consortium credit to refuel the ship. Just under the notion of, you know, as long as it never involves that much money, no one's going to look into it. She's so bleak at times. It ha- or so so real at times. It has a happy ending. But but it's okay. it's a dark, dark beginning. One more corporate structure, it's Kind of edges into the nonprofit territory. I don't think nonprofit corporations are a thing in Exundraconis. Can't prove that. Suspect they wouldn't work very well because you're not going to escape from taxes in this universe. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a B Corp, they're called. And uh, a B Corp is kind of a public works corporation. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the idea of B Corps and public works corporations kind of interchangeably, which is dangerous. A B Corp is a corporation that has a higher value of some sort than just money. Maybe their shareholders believe that some sort of public good is valuable. Kickstarter is a B Corp now. They tend to put corporate money towards copyright trolls. Mm-hmm. There are some others where the shareholders jointly decide that it is important for us to preserve the environment as well as make a profit. Uh, with, with the standard corporate structure, money is the only real measure. And you have to agree that something otherwise is the case or you're going to be guided by the need for money. 
So B Corps lets you have a, a more social goal as well. Okay. Our public works corporation is going to be like the New York rail line or something like that, or the phone system or a monorail company or something like that. In all likelihood, these are subsidiaries of another corporation. Maybe Solnet is one or the Solnet in a large ASR territory is, is, a, is a public works corporation. Genesis, the educational subsidiary, might be something kind of like this as well. Maybe they have a small sliver of money from a large pool of people or something like that to, to fund them. Progenitus has a model kind of like this too. They have a subscription model that most vectors have bought into, most corp nations have bought into, IRPF. The idea here is that you're providing a service for the public good and you're receiving a sliver pay for that. And having this kind of higher goal, other than money, mm-hmm. is a good way to have kind of a mission-focused campaign. Public works corporations are probably going to be very regional, but they're going to be fairly stable with enough funding to keep running without any major hiccups, not enough to stretch themselves too much. B Corps might be a lot larger than that, that they have the range and scope of a standard corporation structure. Yeah, and that, that, uh, that, that makes sense because things like providing power or providing communication or transportation, it, w- one might you know broadly believe in you know, free market and competition, but not if your power gets cut off because there's a, a fight over profits or whatever at the power company. You're like, no, 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 the lights need to stay on. Uh, let, let's compete yeah. in other areas. Yeah, utilities have kind of some special protections and some special behavior patterns, and the the Public Works Corporation kind of exemplifies that. And, and probably d- communications, data services, because the the modern world is completely dependent upon that. Those cannot go away. Well, and they, in HSD, they use a lot of, uh, they handle traffic from a lot of corporations, some of which are direct rivals of each other. So you're going to need a level of removal to have those function properly. Mm-hmm. You know, or just have Marsco do them all, which also kind of works. In... The near future, we're going to be dealing with Marsco's Jumpgate technologies. This is something that's in development and research, and maybe your campaign will last long enough to get there. And these are going to be out of solar system transportation resources. Maybe that's going to have a similar kind of structure. I kind of sketched out a public service corporation that was designed around supporting the Blue Sky stations. And when we get to our series on Blue Skies, I'll probably be bringing them up a fair bit as... uh, non-official Radio Free Demos content. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of another model that's a little more focused on a cause and has figured out a way to get money for that cause or from that cause. And it's not likely there's going to be a huge amount of competition in your character's field if you kind of take that road because there's better money in entertainment. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I know I've referred to it before, but... Like a, a, a CJ Cherry instance of that with, with the, the, the Hani with their lion-like society, they it, it's kind of feudal and they 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 fight each other, take over each other's families slash corporations, but there's certain families that do things that are too important, like the who run the hydroelectric station, who who run a space station. The the, the, the Hani clan is indicated by like in some cases by like what color bright colors you wear. You have, and the immune clans wear black to indicate we are not part of the political political system. You cannot take us to our stuff over. And of course, everyone hates them. It's like those fucking immunes. Please do not attack. Yeah. Well, you just have to be really subtle in the way you attack them. And they're the ones with the sons who, who stick around with the family and they, they only ever rise in status when their elders die. Because they can't kill them. It's unnatural. <laughs> 
<laughs> then they learn to cook. And <laughs> well, let's not go crazy. There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. So that kind of wraps up our topic for the week, and I want to turn to news and events in the furry space or gamer space or whatever that have been particularly cool and go on to what's awesome. Uh, For me, I've got, let's see, one news story. It's a stupid story. The folks at D&D Beyond, the the official Dungeons & Dragons website, put some sort of pivot table together listing the most common names for characters played on their digital tool set. And... I think it's worth noting, and the articles didn't, that these are not necessarily played characters. These are just created characters. So they were like, her, her, her. People are naming their cleric, cleric. And that's probably unfair. It's probably just a character sheet. And that may be the case with all of them. But of the top 15 names, the number one name is Bob. I'm going to guess that's a placeholder, too. I, having LARPed, I'm going to say no. I disagree. I want to believe it's a placeholder. After Bob, which was about 10% of the names, there's Varys, Nix. Now, Nix with a Y and Nix with an X. Well, both Nixes have Xs. Yeah. Nix with a Y and Nix with an I uh, occupy two different slots in total about 14% of the names. So, yeah, so there's that. Bob, Varys, Nix, Luna, Ash, Jack, Lilith, Zephyr, Rogar. Rogar? Rogar. Isn't that like Rogar. For, for hair loss? That's Rogar. Oh, yes. Well. Absolutely. Uh, Raven, Ember, and Inevitably Shadow. Shadow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, other top tens, Bard and Cleric, but again, I've, I've had my preamble on those. So how far down do you have to go before you get to cleric McCleric face? You know, I only got to the top 15. Okay. I don't know. Probably like 25 or so. Okay. We definitely start with Bob. Well, this isn't exciting tech news, but uh, for, for this particular new year, uh, Corbeau and I are going to be going to a, a VR... New Year's party slash convention and VR chat. What, what, what's it called? Which one is this? Who's hosting this? Furry Migration, the Minnesota Con. Uh, it's their big New Year's party. They usually meet in August, I think, but it's a funny year for right, funny people. Right. I look forward to seeing what that's like. And none of these people are going to be vomiting on our carpet. It'll be great. Yeah. My, my name's Dog. if you see me online somewhere in there. So, yeah, try and, try and make that. It should be neat. And I'm a Wayena. And we are doing nothing for New Year's otherwise. So this seems like a fine opportunity. It'll be great. It'll be fun. I hope. A Kickstarter that I backed about three hours ago. It's going to be ending December 27th. So probably uh, before we've actually finished editing this episode. So sorry about that. But there may be some sort of new new supporter mode. Uh, It's called The Well. It looks like it's going to be a lightweight back pocket indie game of some sort. The setting is about adventuring gravediggers in a very bleak world. The world is kind of built into the sides of this massive bottomless shaft. You can't see the top. You can't see the bottom. It's just this endless shaft. And every few generations, the people move like one level down, leaving the top level above them filled with the bodies of the ancestors, which inevitably start animating themselves. Oh, dear. So a lot of the game is treasure hunting in the level just above, uh, which is filled with some really weird looking necrotic monsters. The creator of the game is Peter Schaefer, who's worked with Dungeons & Dragons most recently, but he's also worked with Mage the Ascension and Werewolf the Apocalypse and Green Ronin, which is the company that makes Mutants and Masterminds. So these are a lot of my favorite products or or publishers. And the art looks really kind of Warhammer 40k pretty. I mean, without the technical element, but definitely that kind of 
strange death adoration thing happening. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this one as well. It's creepy gothy and involves a giant dark tunnel into the earth. So that should be fun. Cool. If I ever get the book. There's one thing we need is more RPG books. I did get a copy of the latest contract. It's called Clash, I think. Clash event. No, it's called Clash. It is an event, not a contract. Okay. It's kind of a pulse arena combat sort of thing. It has heavily, it has a heavy kind of monster fighting style thing. A little, a little bit kind of Pokemon arena battle, a little bit robot wars mm-hmm. sort of structure, but with biological horrors, not ASR horrors. Interesting. Uh, some very stylish and weird looking monsters. A little bit of Pulse versus Lumen as well. So uh, Lumen is still staying in the continuity. That's kind of cool. Uh, and that one's that one's kind of cute. It's got some new ideas for a contract. It's more an environment or sandbox than uh, a lot of the previous 8 to 16 pages have been. Especially for the GM, it's a lot more loosely organized and directed, which can be a distinct change of pace if you like the contract structure. Yeah, it's something you can kind of drop into as opposed to really like having for a three-day, two-session arc or something like that. That being said, I did like it. It has a lot of interesting content and a lot of interesting themes. Just a warning, this may not be what you're used to. But it doesn't cost that much if it's not exactly what you wanted. It's only eight bucks. Unless you want the version that's bound in human skin, which is, I think, 45 it's nice that uh, DriveThruRPG makes these options available to us now. Human skin? No, that doesn't happen. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, we will talk to you soon and have a, well, I think we'll all be relieved to put 2020 behind us. So take care and stay warm and catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.